Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hi, this is Nadine Dietz, host of CMO Moves. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thanks so much for stopping by today and to give you a quick overview on what to expect. CMO Moves is all about game-changing leaders, their incredible journeys, the moves that they've made, and most importantly, their personal stories of how they got to be the leaders of some of the world's most exciting brands. I hope you'll enjoy their stories as much as I do and take away a few tips and some inspiration for your day. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to CMO Moves. Today we are bringing you the Disability Inclusion Summit that was live yesterday. And this is a very important topic for everyone. I am absolutely blown away with the wonderful speakers that joined us. And they had a lot of important recommendations for all of us to consider. So I do hope that you'll have an opportunity to tune in and listen to them directly. I also wanted to point out that if you know of anybody who has a hearing disability, obviously sharing a podcast is not ideal, um, but if they wanted to tune in, we had a live translator with us yesterday, as well as live transcription. And both of those are available through the video. So look for the video as well that'll be included as a link in this article release. And that way we can include as many people as possible for this important topic. Thank you and enjoy. Hi, and welcome to the Adweek Disability Inclusion Summit. My name is Heidi Palermo and I'm the Senior Director of Brand Community here at Adweek. On behalf of our entire team, we're so glad to have you all here with us today. Before we get started, I just want to point out a few things. First, thank you to our guest, Mandy, David, for live interpreting today's conversation. Also, if you look to the upper left-hand part of your screen, you'll see an option that will open a window for live captioning of today's event. Additionally, thank you to our partner, Google, for helping us to bring this very important conversation to the forefront. This is one of many conversations that we've hosted and will continue to host to spotlight different communities, inviting marketing and advertising leaders to come together to share the biggest challenges, opportunities, and ways to drive meaningful change. One in four adults in the U.S. have some type of disability, including often ones that go unseen. And if you yourself don't have a disability, chances are someone close to you 
perhaps a friend or a family member does. This July marked the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And while we as a whole can agree we've come a long way as it, as it relates to rights especially, there, it's evident that there's still so much to do. In just a few minutes, eight incredible leaders are gonna join us on stage, on the virtual stage, and they're gonna share how they're personally and professionally navigating today's environment, how disability inclusion has progressed, and where we still have obstacles. Over the past few weeks, just in preparation for this event, our team has learned a lot from our speakers, from our colleagues, and from our community. From the way many still grapple with invisible disabilities, to how they come out at work, to the challenges and strengths that come from intersectionality. And just by being here today, with an open mind and an open heart, um, our hope is that we can all take away some new perspective and actionable solutions to help us move forward, both as individuals and as an industry um, as a whole. So without further ado, I'd love to introduce an incredible leader and a new friend, our moderator for today, Becky Kukula, the Director of Disability Equality Index at Disability Inn. Hi, Becky, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. And wow, we have a lot of participants in the audience here for this amazing conversation. Uh, thank you all for being here. I want to identify myself as a person with dwarfism. You can see me from the chest up. I have brown hair pulled back and I'm wearing a black shirt and black earrings. I as I mentioned, I identify as someone with dwarfism. I'm also proud to identify as someone who is part of the disability community, and I'm so thrilled to be here today. So a little bit about my journey. I grew up in a family that does not have a history of dwarfism. I'm the only person in my family, and most people I know who have dwarfism are the only person in their family with dwarfism. There are 30,000 people with dwarfism living in the United States. That means that not many people run into someone with dwarfism in their everyday life. And that's why this conversation is so important to me because the media's portrayals of people with dwarfism and people with disabilities affects how we're treated in society. If someone sees a positive portrayal in the past, they may treat me in a respectful way. If they see a negative portrayal, they may act fearful. And that fear has led to a lot of awkward experiences that I've had in my life, including after receiving my marketing degree in college, I was applying to jobs and I ended up sending out 1000 resumes and I went on 100 interviews. And every time I walked in a room, everyone was shaking because they didn't know what it meant to be in the presence of someone with dwarfism. And I knew that I wanted to work in the entertainment and media industry starting off in my career because that's the place that can influence these perceptions and where they stem from. After about four months of nonstop interviews, I started off as a temporary employee at Creative Artists Agency in the marketing department. And I continued to learn about how the industry continues to impact how we're portrayed in society. In my current role in the 
disability in organization. I've been there for three years now. I run the Disability Quality Index, and it's a benchmarking tool that companies take to assess how they're doing when it comes to advancing disability inclusion in their organization. And it really starts with making sure that disability is part of the diversity conversation. We always say nothing about us without us. Please continue to intentionally include disability in all of your inclusion efforts because it really is an inclusion after all if people with disabilities continue to be left behind. So I'm so excited to be here, have this conversation with others who have amazing stories to tell. And I'm going to start off and have Storm introduce herself. Hello. Hi, everyone. I am Storm Smith. And to identify myself, I'm she, her, and hers. And my description, I'm, I'm a black deaf woman with a white blouse with black stripes with short hair, kind of pixie cut short with silver earring hoops. And my background, I have a lion, a brown lion picture and a green plant and a dark brown couch. But first, I, it's really, really, really an honor to be here today and be a part of this conversation with the other Incredible, incredible leaders. It's just really an honor. And again, this space definitely needs to continue to have this conversation and transition to actionable plans and implement the actual tangible change in the industry, all industries. So a little bit about myself, my background. I'm currently a producer at BBDO LA with the focus on diversity, inclusion, and accessibility with the functionality within the production unit. And also, I do a lot of creative collaboration in the community, creative work, and um, tell inclusive stories. I'm also um, a motivated speaker. I do a lot of, I, I'm a very big activist and I continue to be visible and represent the, and tell the story and push for significant change. That's what we all deserve and need and, and have the right as well. So I was born and raised in LA and I really originally lived in the East for many years. And then I became the first black deaf woman to be recruited for BBDO worldwide as an art director. And then I transferred to BBDO LA as a producer. So I've been there and I'm looking forward to doing more work. Thank you for having me here. Thank you, Storm. And actually, we're going to bring on the rest of the panelists and continue intros from there. KR, let's go with you next. And thank you to Google for sponsoring this event. Of course. Hi, everyone. I'm KR. I have my pronouns are she and her. I have short blonde hair. I like Storm, I'm also wearing silver large hoops. I have a black long sleeve button up blouse and um, I'm a white LGBTQ proud disabled woman. I have severe hearing loss. So my background is really interesting. Um, I grew up with hearing loss my entire life, born and raised in the Bay Area, being in sales and marketing most of my career. I didn't come into uh, the work of accessibility or disability until about 10 or so years into my career because I didn't talk about my hearing loss. I actually hid my hearing loss 
Um, and started becoming advocate for people with hearing loss and accessibility to uh, hearing devices, which are very expensive, not covered by insurance, thousands of dollars. And that led me on a journey in the tech industry to really start pushing for innovation in products, um, but also representation of what disability looks like in the media, in marketing, and advertising. And so that is currently my role at Google. I'm the head of brand accessibility at Brand Studio inside Google, where we look at bringing a disabled lens to our content, our marketing, our products, and the stories that we tell. Um, and we really are using our platform to start elevating disability representation in all the ways that we intersect. Uh, so I'm super happy to be here with these amazing people that I look up to, have become friends with, um, and we've all kind of been on this journey together. So it's wonderful to see like the elevation of the conversation in disability, especially in marketing and advertising, because we have a lot of work to do and we can't do it alone. So I'm super happy to be here. You just gave me the chills. I'm so happy to be on this journey with you. Next, we're gonna turn over to Josh, who's kind of been my partner in crime as we've been planning this event. So Josh, take it away. Well, thanks so much, Becky. Thanks so much to Adweek, Heidi, and, and the whole team. Adweek is unparalleled when it comes to being able to share conversations like this. So thrilled to be here. Just a uh, verbal description of who I am. Uh, I am in my 40s. I'm a white male. I'm wearing glasses. I have uh, long COVID hair, um, a blue seersucker suit, a floral shirt, and uh, a pin uh, in my lapel. I have an invisible disability, uh, I am blind. Uh, my left eye, uh, I have been blind in since birth, and my right eye, uh, I am legally blind. Uh, my journey has been uh, long and twisting. I started my career in forestry, which doesn't connect to advertising. I uh, gratefully wound up in advertising and have been in the industry for 20 years. I started out uh, at Young and Rubicam back when it was on Madison Avenue. Uh, and at that time, in the late 90s, I, I realized that there, of course, wasn't a lot of recognition or representation for people with disabilities in the industry. Uh, from there, I went to Edelman Public Relations, and uh, now I serve as Director of Strategy for Knoxville, Tennessee-based advertising agency, Design Sensory. Uh, in 2011, I started and uh, created the website advertisinganddisability.com uh, because conversations like this really weren't happening uh, as often, and hopefully that elevated conversations to an extent and continues to. Um, beyond my professional role, I'm also completing a PhD and in uh, my dissertation at Clemson University with the focus of advertising and disability. In particular, uh, the research centers on crypt theory and creative briefs. Really learning how to operationalize and uh, take action for disability inclusion much sooner in the advertising creative process than bolting it on at the end. Uh, I'm proud to be a National Federation of the Blind scholarship winner this year along with the Google Scholarship. Uh, and then finally, I just uh, launched an explorable podcast which uh, focuses on the travel and destination marketing and uh, disability and accessible travel. Thank you, Josh. Uh, let's go with Christina. Hi, um, my name is Christina Mallon. Um, the pronouns I use are she, her, and hers. Um, right now, I am 32 years old. I'm a Caucasian female. I have, I guess, 
long blonde hair. I'm still kind of, it's new to me. So I guess I'm dirty blonde. Um, I'm wearing a black sweatshirt um, that was designed by Christine Kim, who is a, a deaf designer. I kind of have two roles and uh, that is Global Head of Inclusive Design and Accessibility at Wonderman Thompson. Um, so I help make our clients' work inclusive and accessible. And then I am Chief Brand Officer of Open Style Lab. And what we do there is we teach STEM through fashion design. And oh, I forgot the most important thing. Both my arms are fully paralyzed. And that happened at the beginning of my advertising career. So what I'm trying to do is really change how people look at disability because disability has a really bad image problem. And we need to change that. And we can do that through branding and advertising. Amen. Thank you, Christina. Uh, next, we have Russell Schaefer. Hi, thanks. Uh, thanks for the intro, Becky, and thanks to the Ad Week team for the invitation. I'm excited to be on this panel today with uh, some just some really amazing um, people and professionals. Uh, again, I'm Russell Schaefer. I use he, him, his pronouns. I am a Caucasian male um, who keeps my hair uh, closely cropped. Uh, I am wearing a navy blue uh, long sleeve uh, button up and um, I am seated in front of a, uh, a gray background uh, with white door. Um, I am currently the director of global culture, diversity, equity and inclusion at Walmart Inc. Uh, and I have responsibility for our enterprise strategy, brand outreach, benchmarking and employee engagement uh, related to culture, diversity, equity and inclusion. Um, and I also have the great uh, honor of uh, serving alongside Becky uh, as a member of the Disability Equality Index Advisory Committee. Um, I did my undergrad in marketing and public relations uh, and early in my career worked in retail advertising and marketing before shifting into more of a uh, corporate communications and now corporate DNI uh, position uh, like I hold today. I am a husband, a father of uh, two amazing kids. Uh, a 12-year-old daughter and a seven-year-old, soon-to-be eight-year-old son who are both extremely opinionated and tell me um, what they think about everything every chance they get. I am a native of Northeast Ohio and a long-suffering Cleveland sports fan, a suffering that was exacerbated by last night's brutal loss to the Yankees um, in the playoffs. Um, and I am a person who is legally blind um, as a result of a genetic uh, progressive uh, condition known as retinitis pigmentosa, uh, which um, started to lead to uh, vision loss in my teenage years and through my 20s uh, and left me legally blind about, uh, with little to no usable sight about 10 years ago. Thank you, Russell. I value our partnership so much, so I'm so glad you're here. Uh, next, we're going to talk to Brian. Hey, everyone. Um, my name is Brian Stromer. I just wanted to say, first of all, thank you so much to Adweek. I think this really says where we're going as an industry that we can have this discussion on this type of panel. Um, for me, I grew up in New York City, and I remember the first time I saw um, a circular from a retailer, and it featured someone with a disability, and I thought to myself, 
oh my goodness, this is the first time I'm really seeing someone like me. Um, so I have cerebral palsy. I got the advice early on when I was trying to kind of explain what that was, especially in college, to find some way to describe how it kind of affects me. And I settled on saying that um, it always looks when I'm walking like I came from a really great happy hour. Um, is kind of the fun way that I describe it. But um, I think just seeing the lack of representation of disability really inspired me to think about, hey, if I work hard, can I help change that? And can I help bring more representation of disability into the story where it's so often lacking? Um, I ended up at Microsoft, where I joined through our rotational program for college hire. So I should say I'm 25 years old. I'm wearing glasses. I'm a white male. I'm wearing kind of a fun striped shirt and a jean jacket. Um, and really what I wanted to do at, at Microsoft is think about we're focusing a lot on accessibility in our products and how do we bring that into the whole experience. So I um, co-founded and lead our group called Disability and Marketing and Consumer Business, which is really a group of marketers in our business who have disabilities or allies who are thinking about how do we elevate our brand story to include authentic, and I really highlight authentic representation of disability in everything we do. Thank you, Brian. Uh, lastly, we have my good friend, Tiffany Yu. Hi everyone, this is Tiffany Yu. My pronouns are she, her, and just a quick visual description. I'm an East Asian woman in my 30s, and I'm wearing a dark red dress with some flowers on it and red lipstick, because why not? Um, so I come into this space, uh, I acquired my disability at a young age. I was involved in a car accident um, when I was nine. My dad, who was driving, unfortunately passed away, and I have a spinal cord injury that ended up paralyzing one of my arms, known as a brachial plexus injury. And so I have both a physical manifestation of my disability, my, my paralyzed arm, and an invisible manifestation, which is the post-traumatic stress disorder that came from uh, being involved in something very traumatic at a young age. My professional background is actually in finance. I call myself like periphery to the agency world. Um, so I started working as an investment banker at Goldman Sachs, and then moved over to Bloomberg where I co-founded their employee resource group for people with disabilities and their allies, and then worked at a company called Revolt, uh, which was co-founded by P. Diddy. Some of you may have heard of him um, before transitioning into disability advocacy work full time. So the current organization that I run is called Diversibility and we are focused on advancing and democratizing disability visibility, access and representation through the amplification of as many diverse disability stories as possible. So I know that we will touch on intersectionality later in this conversation, but really seeing how disability intersects with all of our identities, with any social issues that are going on right now is really important. And, and yeah, so I did mention I am um, advertising and marketing adjacent. Uh, Diversibility has worked with a couple different agencies really around better understanding language as they go out and run their campaigns um, and, and different marketing activities. Thank you, Tiffany. Again, my heart is so full to be here with all of you today. It's a true honor. Um, we're gonna dive right into the questions. I'm gonna start kind of pointing people out who will answer the questions that I'm asking, 
but then others will have the opportunity to chime in after we go through uh, those who are assigned to the questions. So I'm gonna start off with Storm. What are some of the biggest stereotypes and misconceptions you face that still exist in the industry and how is the marketing advertising industry exacerbating the problem? And then how does intersectionality play a role? As you're answering these questions, we can talk about kind of the reality of what's happening right now. And then what actions can we take as a community to combat this? And we know this is just the beginning, the start of the conversation. Uh, we're on this journey together. So take it away, Storm. Um, you know, I felt I grew up, you know, deaf and I was focused, you know, for years. To, I considered, you know, I'm deaf, but for the last few years, I've started to realize what it really means to be invisible, invisible disability, having that. So often it's not discussed and I've, I've, or acknowledged and have a full understanding of we're fixed on, you know, physical disabilities or what we can see visually a disability. And that becomes an automatic influence for people's biases and, and I realized the statistics show that about 55% of people feel that when they see people with disability in advertising or on the screen, they're uncomfortable. 55% are uncomfortable with that. And that's just, to me, it's like, wow, the numbers are really high. So again, the challenge and the struggle to continue that status quo is often who's writing the story. Who's behind the screen? Who's, do you have anyone with a disability, deaf or hard of hearing or any other spectrum of disability? Are they telling the story? You know, often a person who doesn't have a disability writes the story and decides the route. And it's like, no. So oftentimes it influences the biases and you put it and that determines what we look like, how we speak, how we behave and all of this. So often I'm like, oh, Inspirational porn. No, no, no. That's not about inspirational porn. It's we need to move beyond that and show the whole, the actual, and tell the accurate story. And again, to go back to the significance of representation, the significance of portrayal, it comes with a huge responsibility. And a lot of people, you know, panelists right now, as you see, all of us, we are all considered what I called um we have, we have equity, you know? So we build value, we bring it, we can tell the story, but we don't get enough opportunities to actually show what we can do and tell the story within the, the processes because, you know, otherwise there's two things, 55% will continue to either increase and they say they feel uncomfortable. So it'll get more. I don't want to be around people with disability. I did that. I don't know what to do. Uh, we need to shrink that number and be, and have be more positive and it be more of a standard. And then second of all, we're worth about half a trillion dollars of purchasing power. And that number will continue to increase because of the fact of the demographics of people with disability, you know, continuing the intersectional and it, it just keeps increasing. So we are here more than ever and we're unapologetic and we're standing and we're saying, Hey, you know, what story do we need to tell? 
bring it to the table. Give us a pen and paper. You know, give it to us so that we can be able to do that. Again, I'm really big on you have to challenge your biases. You have to challenge your thinking. You have to challenge your assumptions. Often people are afraid of what they don't know. So, so that we need to change that. If you don't know, ask. Hire. Bring them to the table. Bring them to the room. Allow us to tell the story. And that will challenge the stigma and the, the, the stigma of looking at us as a burden and that we're limited and that we can't do much or no, no, no. You would be surprised how much we can actually contribute to the society, contribute to the work, contribute to the brand and speak to the audience. The audience that either feels, oh, finally, I found someone that looks like me. They have the same face, the same features. It's really important of the being intersectional and representation incorporated and to dismantle the barriers and dismantle the barrier within the storytelling. You know, get that away and dismantle the stigma as well. So that comes with a huge responsibility. So I feel that the brand and marketing needs to take their accountability and bring it up to par. And yeah, so. Thank you, Storm, for your insight. That was so amazing. I always tell people, ask questions, don't make assumptions. Let us tell the story of our lived experiences. Now I'm going to pass it over to Christina. So Christina, we've talked about how the disability doesn't always have to be the focal point of the storyline to include people with disabilities. Can you expand on this and how we can get better with marketing representation? Definitely. So I think, um, you know, coming off of what Storm said, there's really two representations that we see in advertising. We see either the superhero, where you have the Paralympian, or, you know, we are highlighting someone who's doing kind of an average thing, and despite their disability. So that's the one stereotype. The second one really is the victim. That is the woe is me, or, you know, because they're disabled, they have a bad life. And that usually has the sad piano soundtrack along with that marketing representation. So while advertising doesn't need to solely be on disability, you can make the message about disability. And we've done that with the Tommy Adaptive work, but it's all about the tone that you're having with it. If it's more about an uplifting tone and that it is not as, you know, Storm said, inspiration porn, and it's more aspirational, not inspirational. And that's the big thing. Yes, you can have a commercial or an initiative that is for the disability community, but it has to be aspirational, not inspirational. And it has to also have the person with the disability helping you create that. I think that is super key. I see so many amazing initiatives like we did for Legos and, you know, which was so great. Um, they just didn't have any type of accessibility on the advertising, but they were creating an accessibility product. So it's really creating experiences that are inclusive from end to end and consulting with the disability community. I mean, there's eight people here with disabilities that you can reach out to and say, hey, I would love to see how I can feature more people with disabilities in my advertising and 
ensure that the experience is accessible. So I think, yes, you can create advertising that is all about someone with a disability, but it needs to be about aspiration, not inspiration. And I think if, you know, it's not for a product for people with disabilities, I think, you know, to ask that question, is this role um, can that be filled by anyone? So if you took the disabled person out, would the ad still make sense? And that's another question to kind of ask yourself if you're not creating a disability inclusive experience. Thank you, Christina. Uh, that makes me think I, I was going to bring this up earlier, but there were two films around the story of Snow White that came out in 2012. And one story included people with dwarfism in characters with dwarfism and one did not. It was kind of aiming to get those box office numbers, high level recognizable actors. But the struggle with something like that is that high recognizable actors don't necessarily know the lived experience of people with dwarfism, even though it's a fictional story. So they were acting based on what they've seen in the past and it just continues to be a domino effect unless we really intentionally try to be authentic and do the research, even if it isn't someone who has that lived experience. So thank you for that. I'd love to pass it over to Brian and just get your additional thoughts on how we can be better in this space. Yeah, so um, for me, I think I, I grew up thinking about where is, like I said, the representation of disability. And Christina, I think, did a great job kind of outlining the models that we see in advertising and marketing of disability. And as I was growing up and in college, I really started to look for where are people with disabilities in the workforce? Why are they not represented in our media and our culture and our advertising? Where are people with disabilities who are dating and going out and you know having fun? And I think about the intersectionality of like queer culture and what that looks like and how that's excluded people with disabilities. And really what I started to wanna see is you know, how do we not only push for representation of people with disabilities in the stories, but really drive for these storylines that represent that disability is a human experience. It's not the side person that you can put there and then, you know, they don't have any lines or they don't say anything and they're just kind of there for show. It really has to be woven in. And I think, Becky, where you were getting at is to do that, we need to include people with disabilities. And I always like to give this little secret. It's you know, how do we actually make our work more inclusive? My number one piece of advice is hire more people with disabilities. It's a huge struggle that we see with the unemployment rate of people with disabilities. There's just a huge gap. And we can fill that by bringing in talent that wants to work. So I love working with organizations like Becky's Disability In or Storm and I are working with AdColor to think more on the agency side. How do we bring in people with disabilities? Because that's really what we need. It's not enough to just write a story about a person with a disability. We need people with disabilities to write their own stories and not have it written for them. Thank you, Brian. So would anyone else on the panel like to chime in on this topic specifically? Um, also, I wanted to point out that we also have a strong a group of BIPOC and Black Indigenous people of color and with disability that with the intersectionality. So, you know, often we're at the bottom of the barrel 
were just put down the bottom. So if anything, the representation needs to be included with BIPOC. It has to be in the storytelling, in the hiring, and in the retention. We have to we have to retain them. That way, more of us that we that we bring into the story and at the table, the BIPOCs, they the process will generate the significant results. And I honestly, I grew up, I have many black deaf role models. I didn't have any until recently, just a few years ago, one. And so I'm starting to see a few of them more. And I'm like, yes. So I don't want children who have a disability to see where's my, where's the person I can look up to? You know, I want to have someone that I can look to that I that does the work so that shows me I can do the work. So important people visualize representation, me what they see. So yes, you see it, but also you can become, you can become it and do the actual and make it reality. So it's a beautiful thing. So it's just easier to focus on disability as a whole as white disability, but no, you have to incorporate the BIPOC with disability as well. That is where the, the weight, the important weight of the acknowledgement of the population as well. Becky, How, this yes, oh. thank you. Thank you, Storm. And yes, go Russell. Yes, thanks, Becky. Just to add on to that really quickly on this topic of representation, you know, the, the fine point that I would want to put on that is that representation is great. What we really need is authentic representation. So, you know, we've talked about the disability community is anywhere from 20 to 25% of the population, yet on TV screens, only less than 3% of uh, characters and individuals seen on screen are portrayed as people with disabilities. So uh, a, a vast uh, gap in terms of uh, representation in society and on-screen portrayal. And of that, you know, 3% or so, 95% of all characters with a disability portrayed on screen are played by an actor without a disability. So think about that for a moment, you know, and think about if 95% of female characters on screen were played by a man. You know, disability is one of those few areas of diversity where um, you can, you know, put somebody in place who does not actually represent that community and that's seen as okay. We need to get to the point where that's not seen as okay. And I think you know, there could be a lot of things that underlie that, but you know, I, I think within um, advertising and marketing, you know, historically, you know, there's been such a focus on image and disability perhaps has not been seen as photogenic or telegenic in a conventional sense. Uh, we need to expand uh, what we see as, as beautiful and, uh, and vivacious and something to aspire to uh, so that we stop having um, inauthentic representation of disability on screen and instead have it portrayed by individuals who have that lived experience and can really show um, a, a realistic portrayal of disability as opposed to an idealized and stylized um, portrayal of it. Just building off of that quickly, what, what is one piece of advice that you think uh, could be used for people listening today to head in that direction to make sure their content doesn't seem inauthentic? 
I will borrow Brian's um, phrase and say, hire more people with disabilities behind the camera. Um, more, more directors, more producers, more writers with disabilities, um, generally speaking, is going to be get more accurate and authentic portrayals of disability on screen. So, um, you know, having talent behind the camera as well as in front of the camera is huge. Thank you. So I'm going to head over to the next question, and this kind of prompts even something that Storm had spoken about. I think we are seeing that there have been more people with disabilities who've been hired. COVID has impacted the numbers in a negative way, but we continue to celebrate new hires with disabilities, but we don't think about enough about retention and advancement. So I think Storm made a great point there. Even people across all intersections, we need to support them in the environment once they get the job and allow them to have those opportunities to advance if they choose that that's the direction they wanna go. So on the topic of workplace challenges, I'm gonna start with KR. In what ways are companies falling behind in hiring, welcoming, and including people with disabilities in their organization? And what can be done to improve this? Uh, that's a, hi Becky, thank you for the question. And um, again, this is such an awesome panel. Um, for my perspective on this is a couple of things. One, I think we need to take a look at where the opportunities are for disabled people to apply their talents and pursue careers and the things that they are passionate about. So for me, in the tech industry, we've always seen a lot of focus on disability inclusion in product design, in engineering, in, in coding. But if you're not an engineer or if you're not a product developer, that's, you're not going to see that as an opportunity for you. But to Russell's point, where I came in is because I wanted to see more opportunities of people with disabilities in the creative industry, in marketing, in brand, in storytelling, in producing, in creating content, um, and open that door. Because if people with disabilities don't see themselves authentically represented in the marketing, in the brand, in the stories that we tell, especially around products, and if those products are tied to accessibility, people are not gonna pay attention because they don't see themselves. So it won't matter what the product is if advertising doesn't speak to them and doesn't feel like it's authentically represented. So I think the opportunities we have, especially since COVID is a lot of people with disabilities wanting the opportunity to work from home because it makes it easier on them if it's harder to get to an office or to even for me with hearing loss and sitting in meeting after meeting after meeting, going from building to building, it's, I'm a lip reader, it is cognitively exhausting and it makes it very hard for me to stay on top of my game all day long while I want to produce my best work. And so having the opportunity to work from home, which the disabled community has asked for for years, and now because of a pandemic and we've all been forced to work from home, we've been able to see that you can be productive, you can be successful, and that, to me, is the biggest opportunity we have is to reevaluate where people work and provide those opportunities for people with disabilities and create an inclusive environment for them to succeed and bring more people with disabilities to the table in those opportunities where they probably wouldn't have had the opportunity before. Uh, and I think that is our biggest opportunity because one in five workers uh, with people with disabilities lost their jobs in the pandemic. And when you start to drill that down, let's talk about intersectionality too. When you start to look at, you know, the unemployment rate for LGBTQ people with disabilities, it's 39% higher than 
non-disabled queer people. So we are also being impacted when you start to break down by race, by gender, by sexual orientation, the disability community. We have a lot of work to do, but I see so much opportunity now because one, especially in the creative and the representation side, people are starting to pay attention. We are seeing people on the cover of fashion magazines that we haven't seen before. We are seeing more people producing film and TV shows and content, but back to Russell's point, that need to be people with disabilities in front of the camera, behind the camera, sitting there at the table, not only like myself as a white, queer, hard of hearing woman, I cannot speak for, you know, a, a black disabled woman. I cannot speak for um, another race or somebody I don't identify with. I need to use my seat at the table to bring those people a seat at my table to help in the conversation. That is the responsibility we have too when we do get a seat. Is we need to bring a seat for our community and give them a voice too. So that is the biggest opportunity we have right now is to make sure that we are stepping up in the, in the role that we have been given to provide opportunities for others to really elevate this movement of disability inclusion in the workplace, in the industry, in media and entertainment. And now more than ever, we need it because I do not want to see our community get left behind. It is super important that we use this opportunity now to create real change while people are listening and to Storm's point, put things into action and move forward. So I think now more than ever, we have more opportunity. And yes, it did take a pandemic and a crisis and um, a chaotic world to kind of get people to see that, but people are seeing it. So we need to take advantage of that. Thank you, KR. So Josh, building off of that, I also wanted to add, in, in what ways can recruitment teams make sure they are build, being inclusive of those with disabilities in their recruitment process? So a little bit off of what KR was answering, but adding that to your answer. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Becky. So advertising is powerful. Uh, it, it shapes our reality uh, well beyond features and benefits of a, a product or a service, but really about our society and, and how people with disabilities should be a part of it. Not only, again, about what's on screen, but those people in the agency. Uh, my role, I'm a director of strategy. I do not have in my title a connectivity with disability, but I am an advocate for it. So uh, as KR was saying, how can we make sure that we open opportunities to elevate people with disabilities and not relegate them. Accessibility is a major topic right now, but let's say accessibility was not an issue and we resolve all of the challenges and impediments uh, in the next five to 10 years. Where do people with disabilities belong then in advertising? They belong everywhere in any creative position, but how do we get there? Uh, so I, I'm a fan of uh, acronyms, of course, D&I, D-E-N-I, but in particular, I like to use the acronym IDEAS, Inclusive, Diverse, Equitable, Accessible, Successes. And for businesses, whether they're brands or advertisers, successes is the key when it comes to talent recruitment and operationalizing disability within the workforce. How can you measure your metrics, either from a campaign or internally from an employee basis? Who are those people you're looking to recruit? What metrics do you have as a corporation to ensure that you're onboarding more people with disabilities? So how does that happen? I really enjoy this conversation at the professional level, but there are opportunities to engage younger people with disabilities 
to move into the workforce. Like I said, my background is very uh, convoluted. I started with a degree in forestry and that didn't work for me. For many young people in college who have disabilities, they might not know about advertising as an industry. But for anybody listening, wherever you are in your geographic location, I can, can guarantee that at, at a college or university in your community, there's a disability student services uh, office that is helping hundreds, if not thousands of students with disabilities. And you have an opportunity, for example, from a talent recruitment standpoint to be able to bring on those people as interns to introduce them into advertising as a professional career to really tap into an untapped market that could be excited about it. So what else can you do beyond connecting with colleges? You as individuals and as agencies can mentor students with disabilities. There are wonderful organizations, uh, for example, Lights Camera Access 2.0, uh, spearheaded in part by Terry Hartman Squire, that reach out to those in the media, entertainment, and advertising industry to be advocates and mentors to young people even at the elementary level through high school and college to get them excited about advertising. And again, once people with disabilities are incorporated at the early stages of their career, how can you ensure that you're operationalizing a trajectory, whether it's through employee resource groups or affinity groups to start to build those connections or connect with organizations like Disability In to really start to entrench at the core of your uh, organization, that success metric of bringing more people with disabilities into advertising. Thank you, Josh. And I will say that Disability In also has a great mentorship program. We have a lot of big media and marketing companies who are part of that. It's really trying to figure out how can we look at those parts of the business and these major corporations and see it as opportunities for people with disabilities. And I think Josh made another great point of tapping into the disability services centers. We continue to see a trend that the career centers at colleges don't always collaborate with the disability services centers. So it's important as employers to challenge them to find college students with dis disabilities who are fully eligible to apply. So would anyone else on the panel like to chime in on that topic specifically? This is Tiffany. I just, I just wanted to add three things. And the first is, I think, to echo Josh's point, affinity groups are super important, at least in terms of just getting a better understanding of your own relationship to, to whatever identity that is. So if your organization isn't large enough to have a disability affinity group or a disability employee resource group, connect with disability in, connect with diversity, or maybe there are agency disability, or connect with Josh's disability advertising and disability organization. And then the second is, I, I think Storm mentioned this, but you can't be what you can't see. And when I look at, I participated in a panel last week with, col with disabled college students. And one of the questions was, I have, I have these dreams in my career, but I don't, I don't think that they're open to me. And then my response was, well, who determined that? Are you counting yourself out because you haven't seen anyone in that particular career? And part of the reason why I started in banking and then I became a recruiter and then at Bloomberg, I was actually a TV producer is because I wanna show people who have different types of disabilities that you can be agile in your career and you can do, you can do whatever you want, but I think we need more representation of people in these roles and the visibility and amplification of those people and the celebration of them uh, to let 
and invite this next generation of disabled students or disabled people to come into these roles as well. And then the last thing I'll say is I worked in a video campaign. Um, I worked on a video campaign and what I thought was really interesting was they sent me the video before it went live. And as I went through it, I realized there was a lot of language in there that wasn't aligned with how I wanted my story portrayed. And I just really appreciated that co-creation. But what I realized throughout that process is that oftentimes, and I think this is to Christina's point, we're trying to, like, oftentimes what I find is harmful is I want my story to be portrayed as an identity to be proud of and not a problem to be fixed. And oftentimes when I find or I see other disability narratives, it's always trying to fix something. But instead, how can I view, you know, whatever is being designed or whatever the story is being told as an asset? How can we view everything in our lives as an asset or additive? Thank you, Tiffany. You, or, yeah. Just to add quickly to you, Becky and Josh, I, to speak to the importance of mentorship, I actually did the disability and mentorship program, and I would not have my job at Microsoft without having done that program. And if Microsoft hadn't sought out that partnership, I would not be here. Thank you, Brian. We're so excited for you to be here. And before I go to Storm, I just wanted to build off of what Josh and Tiffany were saying about ERGs. The great thing about ERGs is they're cross-disability, usually the people who are participating. So you can even test out your ads and products with the ERG and they can give you feedback based on their lived experiences across disability. Storm, did you wanna contribute to the question? Yes, just one quick thing I wanted to add. I wanted to um, bounce off of what Josh mentioned about LCA, uh, um, live camera action. I was recruited by BBDO at that event. So two smart things that happened. Um, um, that event continued to host different events and partners with big players like CBS, BBDO, NBC, all of that. And so they invited all of them to come meet people with disability or mentorships or opportunities or anything. So, so one smart thing BBDO did, they called a create, they had a creative residency program at that time. And um, the, executive of that came to that event and invited me and two months later offered me a job. And I was so shocked because I never thought it was possible before that. I worked at Gallaudet University for, you know, a, a, a deaf, I was in the deaf world. So I, we already have so many organizations and like life camera action, accessibility and uh, disability and that's available. So the opportunities for the big players to step out and come and build a bridge and go to those events and recruit them and ask them, just talk to them, invite them. You would be surprised how much we can contribute. So the, the only thing that's still lacking is the hiring, but the key is to figure out how to retain them and provide accommodations and support them and allow them to have a conversation with executive leaders and at sea level you know, open that door and invite them to have a conversation because there's a huge gap. You come into the company, but I, I don't have a relationship with the higher ups. I can only do so much. So that's a lot to really consider. And I just wanted to throw those two things out, you know, BBDO and, and that was just a smart thing that they did. So 
when I came in, I knew I had the responsibility to push, you know, to create the pipeline. So it's really crucial at this time. Thank you, Storm. Yes, Kara. Yeah, I'd like to add one more, one more thing back to the ERG conversation. Like it's also really important in something that I do at Google when it is a big company, you have multiple ERGs. It's not only being a big supporter of our own disability ERG, but going to other ERGs like the queer LGBTQ ERG or my wife is a Chinese immigrant. So I, I do a lot of conversations with the aging ERG and going there and educating about disability as well, because sometimes other groups are nervous or not sure what to ask because they don't want to ask the wrong thing. So they end up never engaging and it just silos all the different groups instead of coming together and bringing those different lenses and perspectives and having those different conversations, especially when there's cultural barriers as well. So I found that to be really helpful and just providing even myself as a resource and going into those conversations and inviting them to the table. So it's some more um, inclusive effort as opposed to every ERG is kind of in their own world and doing their own thing. So I really encourage more of that. It's a cross collaboration conversation between different ERGs, especially in larger companies. Um, or if it's a smaller company, I spent most of my careers in a startup where there was no ERD or even a human resources department. It can be a few of you coming together and, and having coffee together and having those conversations and it can become something that the company grows. So I really encourage those cross collaborative conversations and education um, between the different groups to keep people thinking about the different perspectives people may have. I think that's a great point, KR. I was speaking to a chief diversity officer recently, and she said that a lot of senior executives may be tied up most days of the week, and they would like to see a cross ERG event that they could attend and support, and it can get more visibility. And there are a lot of similarities, similar lived experiences across the different groups. So that's a great idea. So we know we're seeing some questions in the chat regarding where we can find resources to find and recruit people with disabilities. We promise we will include links and other resources when we post this full video on adweek.com. I'm gonna jump to the next question, but kind of before I jump to the question, I just wanna say Disability Inn exists, other organizations exist because no one can do this work alone. So I, I will have Russell tap into it a little bit more, but I think this is the one space where even direct competitors are working together to try to solve the unemployment rate of people with disabilities. That's twice that of those without. So even on this panel today, we have representation from similar industries and we just wanna to continue to move the needle forward and no organization can do it alone and no pipeline program can do it alone. So the more the merrier. So Russell, I'm gonna start with you. Between COVID impacts like working from home, social isolation and mental health concerns, as well as the current social unrest, what are the specific challenges and or considerations for impacts to the disability community that we should all be aware of? And how can we address this in the long term? Yeah, thanks, Becky. Uh, you know, before I, before I answer your, your question there, I'll touch on just this, this whole piece of notion around collaboration. Um, you know, like to ascribe to the philosophy that rising tide lifts all boats. And, you know, if we're trying to create um, a more just and equitable and inclusive world, 
um, then we need to democratize the best ideas and we need to freely share those and crowdsource those in ways that are going to uh, help advance um, equity and inclusion across the board, even if that's, you know, within our competitors. Uh, you know, I, I work for Walmart, um, but I would be, um, I would be lying if I told you that I've not had benchmarking conversations with Best Buy and with Target and with Amazon and with others about how we can uh, make what we, what we do more accessible, how we can um, foster greater inclusiveness within our culture? How do we stand up um, self-ID campaigns and processes within our businesses? So you know, this is a space, you know, to, to Becky's point, where there really is no competitive boundaries. Um, you know, it, it, we all uh, excel when we are able to create a more inclusive space. Uh, you know, this pandemic, you know, to kind of get into your, your question, Becky, has really been um, <laughs> for lack of the, you know, the, the term that gets batted around um, getting overused one more time, but unprecedented. Uh, you know, and I think as we uh, reflect upon it, you know, as, as a business, as a, as a brand like Walmart and many others, there's really kind of two uh, segments or populations that you have to think about, your, your customers or your consumers, uh, and then your, your associates and employees. And so, you know, from a consumer-facing perspective, you know, our business model at Walmart had been um, you know, one of our uh, enterprise objectives is to make every day easier for busy families. You think about that from a disability perspective and what you're talking about, um, you know, for the general population is convenience. You know, one person's convenience is another person's access. If we're trying to make every day easier for busy families, or also trying to do is make every day possible for people with disabilities. Uh, one of the big ways in which, you know, we've been seeking to do that is to create and more of an omni-channel uh, experience um, for, uh, for people buy online, pick up in store, online grocery, delivery, things of that nature that, uh, you know, for the general population are matters of convenience or certainly in the time of this pandemic, a matter of public um, health and safety and, and, and daily essentials. But in a, in a normal space, you know, something like um, grocery pickup or delivery for a person with a disability, somebody who's transportation constrained, um, that's a matter of access. Um, you know, that, that's being able to do something independently uh, versus having to involve other people, uh, coordinate logistics, pay a premium for things. Uh, it's really helping ensure that everybody has uh, the same access to products and services. So when you enter in the, the notion of the pandemic, one of the things that we did early on at Walmart was to uh, be really quick to expand our um, online grocery pickup offerings to create more slots, more spaces, uh, just for the general population, the general public. But then factoring in disability, we were intentional to ensure that um, we uh, set aside the first pickup slots of every day uh, for people with disabilities and uh, seniors, those who uh, might be immunocompromised or might be high risk. That way we were ensuring that, you know, after the deep cleaning of overnight, uh, you know, they were going to be the first in line, but they were also going to be those who had um, the first access. They could kind of coordinate their schedules around that um, and, and rely upon that. Similarly, our Sam's Club business actually uh, set up a concierge, a concierge service 
uh, early on in the pandemic to ensure that um, people with disabilities and seniors were able to um, pull up to um, the club and have somebody come out, take their order for them and go in and shop for them. And, and that's huge. It's, it's transformational um, in terms of, you know, being able to uh, take care of the general pub, uh, public with um, a single solution, but really thinking um, in a customized and inclusive and equitable way uh, for, for people with disabilities. You know, from an employment perspective, uh, you know, and it was mentioned earlier, I believe, by uh, KR, you know, there's a lot of inherent opportunity and potential um, you know, within this pandemic to identify uh, work from home opportunities and remote work, which is uh, inherently beneficial to people with disabilities who are transportation constrained, to be able to ensure that uh, you're able to do your job from anywhere when uh, this pandemic finally abates and we get back to something more closely resembling uh, what we left uh, behind in, in early March. Um, Hopefully what we see is businesses and opportunities that are, are more open and receptive to flexible work arrangements and remote work uh, that will enable and empower more people with disabilities to be employed from anywhere, uh, regardless of their geography or their ability to get to and from work on a daily basis. But what's essential for that to work and what we need to ensure is that uh, the tools and resources, things like virtual platforms uh, are accessible for people who are blind, people who are deaf or hard of hearing, uh, people who are, uh, have mobility disabilities, uh, you know, are, are the platforms and the tools that we use for flexible and remote work, um, you know, creating um, the opportunity for everybody to work from anywhere all the time, but invariably, you know, unintentionally in many cases, leaving people with disabilities behind because they're not accessible. So uh, it's not enough just to be open to, you know, remote work and flexible work arrangements. You have to ensure that the tools that you use for that are accessible. And, and Becky, to the last point on your, uh, on your question, mental health um, is one of the things that we've seen um, come to the forefront um, at Walmart during this pandemic in so much as um, impacts to somebody's daily routine for those one in five Americans who have a diagnosed mental health condition. Uh, you know, disruptions to the day-to-day -day and the way in which you go about your, uh, your tasks and your work uh, can be highly um, volatile and, and you know, can lead to mental health, um, mental health uh, conditions being exacerbated during this remote time. But also, uh, you know, just the stress and strain of working from home, isolation, maybe trying to um, balance being a, a parent and a virtual teacher along with doing your job um, can lead those who don't have a previously diagnosed mental health condition to experience um, a, a mental health um, e episode or situation. So um, as colleagues, as, as teams, as, as employers, it's critical now more than ever that we're checking in on people, doing those mental health first aid checks, uh, ensuring that you know, those individuals that we know who have disclosed, who do have mental health disabilities, that we're ensuring that we're really checking in on them. But across the board, we're checking in on everybody. Um, to ensure that you know, people um, are well and they have the tools that they need to thrive. Thank you, Russell. And you made a great point about a remote option not being the only thinking about accessibility. It's also important to be mindful that when it is safe to physically go back to the workspace, 
Some people with disabilities may want that option as well. So we can't go backwards in physical accessibility either. So for That's Tiffany, uh, kind of building off of that and some questions that have come in as you're talking about the current considerations with what's going on in the world, uh, how can we also get more disabled voices in executive and directorial positions? What are some steps people can take to encourage that? Sure. Um, I was part of a conference last week that was talking, that was more centered on racial equity and how we can get better representation kind of at those top two levels and, and also at the board level. And I think what's interesting is oftentimes when we try to think through solutions, we're looking externally. Who can we bring into our board? Who can we hire into this role? While thinking about the pipeline of all of the people who are in more junior roles that we can, can continue to up-level throughout. So I would say to that point, just really investing in the employees that you do have who are disabled and trying to, again, we talk about hiring, right? But retention and, and many of the other panelists have also talked about retention. Um, it's, and, and I think what's interesting to me about this word inclusion is inclusion to me in its current definition seems problematic because it's asking me who represents uh, certain identities that are not part of the majority within the organization. It's inviting me to move into a space where the norms and the culture are already set rather than actually, I think, co-creating and co-building something together. And one of, I'll just touch on one of the points and then I'll talk a little bit about the pandemic. One of the points that was brought earlier was discomfort around disability. And I think the first thing I say is no one, no one died from being uncomfortable. And I will, I will also invite you to use discomfort as an opportunity for reflection and growth. And to Christina's points around the Paralympians narratives that we see and the, and the people who have really cool looking prosthetics, I don't have any prosthetics and my hand looks very different. And oftentimes I'll have people look at my hand and they'll be like, ooh, like that looks like it hurts or I don't really like how that looks. And I said, oh, well, that's interesting. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about why you feel that way? And then they'll say, oh, you know, I've never seen a hand like that. And I'm like, you know, a lot of people have different bodies. And this is, this is me mainly talking to younger people. But, but again, it's like, how can we normalize the, all of the diverse narratives and the diverse bodies that do exist? And disability doesn't, isn't just a bionic arm or, or you know, however, however many people are framing it now. I would love to see more, more representations there. So there are three points that I want to make that kind of echo Russell's what Russell had highlighted in terms of what's happening during this pandemic. And the first is that every single issue is a disability issue. If we're looking at what's happening with police violence and, and potential reforms there, how can we incorporate a disability lens into that? If we're looking at what's going on with racial equity and racial justice, how can we incorporate a disability lens into that? If we're looking at COVID, how can we incorporate a disability lens into that? And what I mean by that is that I am just really tired of the disability community being left behind in every single aspect of everything. So the way that shelter in place notices were delivered and the fact that many people in the deaf community uh, didn't, didn't know that there were, um, that there were, what is it? Um, 
that that there were lock that there was a lockdown ordinance or anything around the world. And then even even with mask current mask culture and the ability to not be able to see people's facial expressions or read lips. Um, actually, you can't see it because but we're distributing these masked um, these windowed masks to anyone in the disability community who needs them. But I do want to offer two last points, which are more hopeful to me, which is number one, I think this pandemic has really unlocked what access can look like. And what I mean by that is access isn't just, oh, I am deaf or I am blind and I want to be able to participate in this webinar. It's also, oh, I may be a mom who has kids at home or I may have a pet. And all of us are kind of just checking in with each other to ask, what are your access needs in terms of how can you show up best in this space? The last point I'll make is that I feel really hopeful about everything that is going on in our country from a social justice perspective that we can't go back from this. I've never participated in something like this before. And if, if others of you have, I think that's amazing. But now to be able to have 700 people join from all across the world to be able to have access to this conversation and have you bring that back into your organizations, at least from a disability perspective, I really see us starting to make more, more movement forward. Thank you, Tiffany. Thank you all so much. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna turn it over to some questions. So one of the questions that came in from the chat is, one moment. What are some things we can begin to incorporate immediately in our meetings, recruiting, and interactions with colleagues and clients to ensure that we're being inclusive and respectful of people with disabilities, both visible and invisible? Anyone can take it. This is Tiffany. I'll just add in, add in something really easy you can do, which is just check in with everyone at the beginning of a meeting um, and, and really be interested in the response. It's kind of this, how are you, comma, really? Um, that's, that's my contribution. I love that. I always go back to that recommendation for when I first started the interview process. It would have been nice to have a little conversation about how are you, how was your commute, or what did you do over the weekend? Just finding those things to normalize the conversation before you get into the serious interview questions and it creates awkwardness. <laughs> and we do always say at Disability In to put it out there ahead of time before the meetings or before you're bringing someone in for an interview. Put a line in your communications that say, please let us know if you have an accommodation request for this meeting or interview or application, put it as many places as possible. And you will be surprised how many people do ask for accommodation who may not identify as having a disability. So they are also known as productivity tools, helping people become successful in all of these scenarios. And most costs less than $500. I think that's a big hesitation. People are hesitant that People with disabilities are going to cost a lot of money to hire, and that is not necessarily the truth. Um, one thing, this is Brian, that I would add is I've started trying to make meetings 45 minutes instead of one hour 
or 20 minutes instead of half an hour just to give people time to decompress kind of from like a mental health piece. We're all staring at screens all day and it's a lot. And then two is most um, conferencing systems, whether we're using Google Meet with KR or we're using Microsoft Teams, um, a lot of these systems have AI powered captioning in it. So you can actually add live captioning. AI isn't perfect, but it's a great place to start. Um, and then third, I would also say um, use an accessibility checker. I know in Microsoft's tools, we have accessibility checkers that look at things like, is there alt text when you're making a presentation? And is can people who have a visual impairment understand that presentation and enjoy it? Thank you, Brian. So another question is, how do we find out more about uh, working with the ERG for ad testing? Uh, do you want to take that, Russell? Yeah, thanks, Becky. Um, so th that's one of the things that we've done a lot inside Walmart is work with our um, various, um, as we call them, associate resource groups um, around um, any type of focus group, whether it be new product, advertising, some sort of messaging campaign, um, both disability, but also our, our pride LGBT group and, um, you know, our, our Native American, our African American and our, our other resource groups. Um, if you don't know who leads your resource groups within inside your organization, uh, I'd recommend trying to reach out to um, your diversity and inclusion office if you have one, um, or if you don't know where to start there, um, ask your HR partner, you know, they'll, they'll probably be able to get you in, into the right spot. Um, you know, but if you have employee resource groups within your organization, chances are you'll probably be able to find some contact information on your intranet, um, be able to reach out to those leadership groups. Um, what I will tell you from experience is, you know, we, we've seen an evolution of our resource groups within Walmart, you know, over time from kind of that, that social uh, support group where people come together uh, around a, a, a shared identity or, or lived experience um, to be able to just provide um, support for one, an one another and, and share resources to um, over time, our, our groups have, have evolved to where that, that is still present, but there's also this um, business component. You'll, you'll hear some organizations refer to their groups as business resource groups. And I think that's when you find that sweet spot is when you, you have your disability group, your LGBT group, or, or whatever um, resource group it is, being able to contribute to the business that you're in. Um, and, and I think the leaders and, and members of those resources groups love that opportunity to be able to um, give you candid and, and real-time feedback on an ad um, to see, is this inclusive? Is it, are portrayals authentic? Um, you know, are there things that could be done better from an accessibility perspective? Um, you know, that, that goes a long way, uh, not only ensuring that your product gets right, but that you're building brand advocates within the business for when that piece finally does launch, all those members of that resource group are going to be championing that with their networks and saying, we have an opportunity to provide input and feedback on this. And it's just going to help that, you know, get amplified and, um, and increase the cascade and the ripple effects by, you know, just bringing those people in and giving them a voice. 
One quick point to, uh, to comment on is that uh, if you're not a major multinational corporation and you're a, a small mom and pop business or just a, a mid-sized advertising agency, definitely connect in your community if there is no one with a disability at your business. Uh, for example, in Knoxville, I serve on the Mayor's Council of Disability Issues. There's a school for the deaf here, of course, and again, going back to other groups in your local community that have disabilities that potentially want to add a voice to that conversation at your business or organization. Thank you. Uh, the next question is, I would love to know a good example of aspirational, not inspirational in advertising that you've seen. Christina, do you wanna take that one? Uh, such a good question. I would say um, that Tommy Hilfiger Adaptive Work, um, which you can find on Tommy's YouTube page. I, I worked on that, so I definitely have a huge bias. I think a lot of the work that Google and Microsoft do, um, I mean, they're great examples of, you know, aspirational work that feature people with disabilities, but is not, um, you know, trying to be inspirational. Um, but I really look to those three um, to do that. But, you know, I think there's so many great people in the disability community that you see on this call. I also, during this call, just bought the handle for disabledcreators.com. So hopefully in my weekends or at night with the help of this team, create something that you guys can use as a resources because tone is something that is hard to get when you're not a part of the community. So it is crucial. And the great thing is that 20% of people in this world have a disability. So there's most likely someone that either has a hidden disability or a physical disability within your company. And if you don't, as Josh said, there's so many, you know, government resources and so many great, um, you know, outside resources that you can use to just check the tone. Thank you, Christina. This Brian did, or Tiffany, did you have anything to add? Yeah, this is Tiffany. I just wanted to add, um, there was a campaign, or I'm not sure if it was a campaign, there was something that came out a few years ago where Aerie, the American Eagle brand, was launching um, some new lingerie. <laughs> and all of their all of their models had had visible disabilities. And what I thought was really interesting and done well in that was that it wasn't a PR thing. They didn't come out with a Airy launches new campaign that features models with disabilities. It just showed up on their site one day and one of our partner organizations saw it and screenshotted it and then that post went viral, right? I think that to me is where I see this difference between inspirational versus aspirational. But the other thing I think I'm learning too is that I can't I can't tell, I can't force you to not be inspired by something that you see or you read. But what I can hope for is that if you do feel inspired, you feel inspired to act. So if you feel inspired by my story, can you now commit to hiring, to doubling your disability hiring? <laughs> uh, can you commit to making sure that there's at least two, one or two people with visible disabilities in your ad campaign? And then the last thing I'll say, and especially to Christina's point as well, is I'm just really tired of these, this person did this thing despite their disability. And what I've been encouraging my allies to do is replace that with because of. The fact that I'm on this panel and all of us are on this panel that's hosted by Adweek is because of our disabilities, right? And how can we start to really just shift that narrative that, that 
the reason why I'm here and the reason why you're asking me and asking for my insights is because of my disability, because it is an asset in my life. Um, and I, this is Brian. I would add a great example that I can think of is there was a Zola um, ad in the subway and that's like a wedding website. And I actually, it stopped me when I was in the subway and I saw it because it featured all of these couples and it actually featured one of them was a person in a wheelchair and someone who didn't appear to have a disability. And what I loved about this ad is it wasn't about disability at all. And I think so many ads that include disability, the purpose about them is something accessibility or disability related, but disability needs to be part of the human experience. And I think about even at Microsoft, people sometimes think I'm part of our accessibility office, and it's so cool that we have an accessibility office. But I love that I'm part of our marketing org, and I'm not part of like our DNI org or anything, because then I get to go and bother all of our marketers about how do we include more people with disabilities, and I think that is a form of power. Thank you. All great answers. Thank you. So we have a question from someone named Brant Feldman. He represents the Paralympic athletes in the U.S. And he wants to get our perspective. The question he's asking us all are when his athletes are being used in campaigns, he thinks in general they have been shown in the right manner. But is there any sort of checklist you think about from a representation manner? I think it comes back to authenticism. If the individual who's the talent on screen or in print or however their ad, uh, they're being portrayed in the ad, if they're comfortable with it and it doesn't seem like they're shoehorned into uh, endorsing anything from an automobile to a soft drink, if, if they embrace the brand, uh, then it makes sense. And, and to that point, those individuals who are Paralympians hopefully are part of that narrative, are co-creating at the onset of the campaign rather than, again, being bolted on at the very end. Um, ultimately, as well, the ad needs to be accessible uh, uh, across a variety of ways, including if they are a Paralympian, more than likely, there may be global opportunities uh, and so ways to ensure that uh, translations can take place, whether it is in uh, open captioning or closed captioning or audio descriptions. Thank you, Josh. Did anyone else wanna chime in before we wrap up? I do actually. I, yes. I wanna say that a good example that came out recently was Nike's You Can't Stop Us ad that shows Olympians and Paralympians together. And it just felt like the most, you know, equal, they didn't call out disability or not having a disability. It was just like, one seamless story of athletes and it was really empowering and I thought they did a really wonderful job of um, representation and giving athletes a platform and it wasn't really about their disabilities about them as an athlete them as a person um, so I would say a good example um, would be that you can't stop us ad. I really like that ad. I thought it was pretty powerful and you can't stop any of us on this panel from moving forward and moving the needle forward. I'm so thankful for all of you. And I hope this is just the beginning of our continuous journey. And for those listening today and watching, just know that we're here to bounce ideas off of, ask us questions, don't make assumptions. Let's figure out how to get this right together. And with that, I'm gonna invite Heidi back up. 
Hi, thank you so much, Becky, and thank you to everybody who I now consider my friends. I, I so, I'm so grateful to have met all of you, and I know the team at Adweek is um, just thrilled for this conversation, as well as the 700 or so folks that tuned in live. Um, just real quick, I wanted to ask our fabulous moderator if um, she has any advice. Um, you did such a great job asking the questions, but I know you have advice as, as well, Becky. Well, those that are corporations should take the Disability Equality Index, utilize the mentorship program that Disability In has. And one piece that I think came up in the chat earlier is the other route for people with disabilities is entrepreneurship. For-profit businesses, 51% owned and operated by people with disabilities, can get certified through Disability In, and you can gain networking opportunities and connections to these Fortune 1000 companies who are working hard to find disability-owned businesses to work with. So let's continue to work together and help each other on this journey. Nobody can do it alone. We're here for you. Let's call this just the beginning and we're gonna keep going. So thank Absolutely. you. Thank you so much. And we um, just one more quick note. We had so many great questions and comments in the chat, um, overwhelming amount. And what we're going to commit to doing is we did start a Twitter thread with those of you, uh, our panelists who are on Twitter, drop your questions there. We're going to do our best to get to as many as we can. And then also anyone who contributed a question to the chat. Rest assured, we're going to use that content uh, or your questions for content and have speakers like the panelists here today. We're going to continue working with them to get those answers and resources out there to you. So thank you again. Thank you to our partner, Google, and um, we hope everyone has a fabulous day. Um, last but not least, I have one more thing if you're still watching. I uh, wanted to um, make a mention of a special offer for those of you who are new to the Adweek community. Go to adweek.com for a $99 rate for an annual conversation. Thank you all very much and take care. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, I would love your help in sharing CMO Moves with one of your friends or colleagues who you think might enjoy it too. And if you have time, I would really love your review or ratings on Apple or SoundCloud. So thanks again and have a great day. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.